morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Three nurses appeared before St. Peter at the pearly gates, and St. Peter said to the first, tell me what you did on earth. She said, I was a birthing room nurse. I helped bring hundreds of precious babies into the world. Peter said, enter. Then he turned to the second and said, how about you? And she said, well, I was a trauma unit nurse. I helped save hundreds of lives of people involved in terrible accidents. Peter said, enter. Turned to the third. She said, I worked for an HMO. Over the years, I saved my company hundreds of thousands of dollars by refusing extended care to people who were trying to bilk the system. Peter said, you may enter. She said, you really mean it? And he said, yeah, you've been pre-approved for three days. <laughs> you know, I usually don't tell jokes like that for the reason that they start out so theologically unsound that they give people the wrong impression. But I think those jokes sort of describe most people's view of heaven. If you do enough, you get in. If you don't do enough, you don't get in. If you're good, you get in. If you're bad, you don't get in. Well, our passage this morning is going to correct that misconception. It's going to show us that nobody who gets in heaven deserves it. And I've entitled verses 9 to 11, Who Won't Be in Heaven? And I want us to look at it in three parts. The first is a portrait of our past. Notice verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You know, we think we're living in an immoral, wicked age. And indeed we are. But the context in the first century into which Paul wrote this letter was every bit as immoral. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted, and Pompeii, Italy, was smothered in ash. The people there died immediately. And the, the, the ash covered them up, and their bodies just decayed in the ash. That city lay undiscovered for about 1,700 years until archaeologists found it. And as archaeologists began to dig there, they found cavities of ash where the people's bodies were, just a mold in the ash. And so what they would do is pour plaster into the openings, and they would capture the people doing what they were doing at the very second that they died. You know what they discovered in the city of Pompeii? 
total depravity. They discovered prostitution, pornography, immorality of all kinds. Happening the very moment, the very second that they were swept into eternity. Historians tell us that one of the reasons that the Roman Empire fell was because of the evil and moral corruption within. So as we look at this list of sins in the first century, what's interesting is they're the same sins that are still on the front pages of the newspapers today. We can divide them into two categories. The first category is sins against self. Notice verse 9. The first word in the list is the word fornicators. It's the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. It's the same word used in chapter 5 and verse 1, where he says it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. This word is an umbrella term. It encompasses all kinds of sexual sin. In fact, he's going to later in this list give us some of the sins that fit under this umbrella. Sins like adultery, sins like homosexuality. This word is the broadest term for sexual sin, and that's why probably the word immorality fits best. It's a big umbrella of all kinds of sexual sin. And today in America, pornography and sexual sin is an is at an epidemic level. I read this week that there are more pornography outlets in America than there are McDonald's hamburger joints. Annual sales of pornography exceed $10 billion in America. And the target of the pornographers are the 13 to 18-year-old boys. Now, let me qualify this. The Bible does not say that sex is sin. Hebrews 13.4 says the marriage bed is to be undefiled. You defile the marriage bed by going outside of your marriage. But inside the marriage, it is undefiled. That means it is holy inside of marriage. According to Genesis 1 and 2, God created sexual intercourse for intimacy so that the two may be one flesh, and for procreation, so that we would multiply and fill the earth. And anything outside of that union is sexual sin, immorality. Second in the list is idolaters. An idolater is anyone who worships an idol. Now, in your mind, when you think of an idolater, you probably think of someone who builds a statue or makes a totem pole and bows down to that idol. That is certainly idolatry. But Ezekiel 14.4 says, this people sets up their idols in their hearts. You know, idolatry can be a very mobile sin. You can have an idol that no one else can see because you've established it in your heart. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says that greed amounts to idolatry. People worship the almighty dollar, and they never get enough. 
They're always saying more, more, more. Idolatry can be materialism. For you, it can be sports. It can be your boyfriend. It can be your girlfriend. It can be your career. For most people, it's yourself. It's your ego that you bow down to and you serve and you obey. Idolatry is looking for meaning and fulfillment in life in any other source than God. Third is adulterers in verse 9. And this is the sexual sin specific to a married person. It's a married person having sexual relations outside of their marriage bond. And of course, statistics for infidelity are virtually impossible. But the Janus report on sexual behavior said that more than a third of men and more than a quarter of women admit having had at least one extramarital sexual experience. And I'm assuming those must be the ones who got caught. So over a quarter of the people, between a quarter and a third of the people in the United States says, say, yes, I've committed adultery. In fact, while I was looking for information on this this week, I went on the Internet and noticed that uh, there are companies advertising today that they can use DNA to test for infidelity. You just take your spouse's clothes to them and they'll give you evidence to use. Fourth term is effeminate in verse 9. Now that's a rare word. It's a word that literally means soft or delicate and it's often used in reference to clothing having delicate clothing. It's a word that came to be synonymous with the idea of a drag queen or a transvestite, a cross-dresser. Someone has said that in Southern California, one out of every ten women isn't. Deuteronomy 22.5 says... A man shall not put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. This this word kind of tells me that God wants there to be a distinction between males and females. And he finds it an abomination when men dress like women. Which leads us into the next term, which really ties into this one, and that is homosexuals in verse 9. I hear people say all the time, where in the Bible does it say that homosexuality is a sin? Well, Leviticus 18.22 says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination 
And then in Leviticus 20.13, it says, it is detestable, and those who do so are to be put to death. You say, well, Dan, that's the Old Testament. Where does it say in the New Testament that homosexuality is a sin? Well, right here. It says, do not be deceived. Homosexuals are unrighteous and will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet people have so distorted the word of God today that we have homosexual churches. Last time I inquired, we have one in Cape Girardeau. Now, I know people lose their jobs for saying this, but it is my job to say this because the Word of God says this. And I will say this until they drag me out of here and throw me in jail for doing it because the Scripture is clear that homosexuality is a sin. But let me add this. God loves homosexuals just as much as he loves adulterers and idolaters and thieves. You say, but Dan, I have a tendency toward homosexual, homosexuality that other people don't have. I have this tendency. It's my temptation. Okay? But that doesn't give you the right to act on it. I'm heterosexual. It may surprise you to know <laughs> that I struggle with temptation relative to sexual impurity with women. There, I've said it. But you know what? That temptation doesn't give me the excuse or the right to say, I guess I can give in. Probably the better illustration is a term or a person he's going to talk about a little later when he talks about the drunkard. An alcoholic has a tendency toward alcohol that a lot of other people don't have. He has a temptation toward alcohol that some in this room would say, I have no temptation. I, I don't want to take a drink. I have nothing, no interest in that. doesn't even taste good to me. The fact that the alcoholic has that tendency does not give him the license to act on it any more than it, the person who's a homosexual having a tendency doesn't give him the license to act on it. So listen, don't let anyone try to convince you that homosexuality is not a sin. It's a sin. But it's no worse sin than fornication or idolatry or adultery. Sixth, in the sins against yourself, jump down to the middle of verse 10, and I want to pick up that word, drunkards. This is the person who drinks to excess and has no control over himself. 
Drinking is not a sin. Jesus drank. Drunkenness is the sin. And today in America, I think I could probably argue the point that alcohol has become the number one abused drug in our country. In fact, each year 48,000 Americans die alcohol-related deaths. The drunkard. Those are the sins against self. Then there's a second side to this list, and that's the sins against others. Notice verse 10. The seventh in the list is thieves. Those who steal from others. The National Retail Security Survey reports that inventory shrinkage amounts to $32.3 billion a year. Retail stores, I don't know where they got this term, inventory shrinkage. You know where it went? Surprising to me, $32.3 billion a year, of that amount, employee theft constitutes $14.9 billion. Almost half is the employees of the store stealing from them. And then another $10 billion less, less than the first amount, is shoplifting. So the biggest problem we've got with inventory shrinkage in America is the employees of the store going home with the goods. Thieves. Eight is covetous. Also in verse 10. Of course, this is the Tenth Commandment. And this is a sin that isn't obvious to other people. You can be covetous, and if you're careful with your words, people may not even know you're covetous. It's a heart problem. It's the person who's never content because they always want something else. And when they get something else, they always want something more. Covetous. And then that word drunkards comes up again. I put it in both lists because it's not only a sin against yourself. It's a sin against others. Because the drunkard destroys his family. And the drunk driver kills not only himself, but other people. And so this is the sin I would put in both categories. It's a sin against yourself, and it's a sin against others. And then the ninth in the list is revilers in verse 10. Those are people who use their tongue as a sword, running down people, hurting people, backstabbing people. I want you to take a close look at this word because it's kind of interesting that he puts this sin of slander right in this list with adultery and homosexuality. Because there are people who say with great pride, I've never committed adultery. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not an alcoholic. But they constantly 
use their tongues to hurt people. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say is the indication of what fills your heart. Revilers. And then the tenth and final one in the list is swindlers in verse 10. That's a word that means a con man, an extortioner. This is the person who commits mail fraud. This is the person who cons the elderly by calling them on the phone or, or through email and, and, and takes their money. This is the person who steals your, your identity, your credit cards. That's the idea of a swindler. It's also the person who has the get-rich-quick scheme that you buy into and end up losing your money. It's the con man. So he gives us ten kinds of people that won't be in heaven. What's his point? Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? These are the people you're not going to see in heaven. But he's got another point. And that's the beginning of verse 11, where he says, Such were some of you. It's my privilege to stand up here every Sunday and to speak to a church full of ex-fornicators, ex-idolaters, ex-adulterers, ex-effeminate, ex-homosexuals, ex-thieves, ex-covetous, ex-drunkards, ex-revilers, ex-swindlers. You see, the first point is the portrait of our past. Which brings us to the second point which is the power of the gospel. If the unrighteous can't inherit the kingdom of God and we are the unrighteous, then the question is, how are we getting in? And I want you to notice the word in verse 11, but. You see it? It's one of my favorite words in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. If chapter 6 ended at verse 10, we could all go home. But fortunately, there's a but in there. And actually, in the Greek, there are three buts in there. It says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. He mentions three things that the gospel does to unrighteous people. St. Augustine used to frequent prostitutes in the city of Carthage, obviously before he got the title saint. But one time after he became a Christian, one of his prostitutes with whom he had been familiar saw him on the street and she yelled out, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And Augustine turned away and said, yes, but it is no longer I. You see, he was saying, I am a different person. And that's the power of the gospel. 
you, know, you college students are coming back to school, and, and you've, some of you have moved into your dorm, and I'm sure if I went to your dorm room right now, it probably looks pretty nice because you just got there. But I can speak for guys in the dorm. Usually over the course of the semester, you start piling up clothes, and you know sometimes you've got to go clean it up a little bit because you lost a book, and it's somewhere in there. And, and, and about twice a semester, maybe you even wash your clothes. But they, you know, they just pile and pile. And as long as your roommate's okay with that, you both kind of just pile and pile and pile. Heard about two college students who were at a college where the mascot was a goat. And they went to the administrator and asked if they could keep the goat in their room. And he said, well, what are you going to do about the smell? And they said, well, the goat will just have to get used to it. But you know, I've watched college students go through college, sometimes in college, guys, they meet a girl, and they end up getting married, and they're living together, and I go over to their house, and you know what? They're hanging up their clothes. They're picking things out. They're, they're doing things I never saw them do before. Why are they doing that? Well, either she's beating him up on the side, or it's because of that relationship. Because he now loves her, he wants to do what pleases her. And that's certainly true in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We come into the relationship, we've been sloppy, messy, filthy. And we come into the relationship, and certainly we want to do we want to change some things because we want to please the one we love. But what's different about Jesus' relationship with us is that he actually changes us. And that's what these three phrases mean in this verse. The first one is, you have been washed. The moment you are saved, the moment you are born again, you get a bath. And what is washed away? Your unrighteousness. All your sin. And what washes it away? Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus washed us from our sins by his own blood. When you are saved, you get a bath. And I love what Jesus said in John 13.10. He said, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You only need one bath. You get bathed at salvation. Jesus says, I don't have to give you a bath again. I will have to wash your feet every once in a while. You've had the bath. You're walking through this filthy world, and you're getting your feet dirty. And that's where 1 John 1.9 comes in. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't need the bath ever again. But I often need my feet washed. In fact, I need it on a daily basis to come and be cleansed and made whole and restored in that relationship. So you have been washed. Second, he says, you have been sanctified. The word sanctified means you have been set apart. God has set you apart from this world and set you apart unto 
him. So here you are, here I am, a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. He washes us clean, and he sanctifies us. And that word has the idea of making us useful. The root word means holy. In fact, it's the most common word used to describe God. And the only term that is trebled when referring to God. Holy, holy, holy. To help you understand what this term means, it really has the idea of allowing you to fulfill your purpose. You see, right now, you are sanctifying the pew you're sitting in. Because these pews were made, they were created to have people sit in them. So when you sit in it, you are sanctifying the pew. You are setting apart the pew for what it was made for. When you leave here, this afternoon it will be empty in here, and the pews won't be sanctified anymore. You see the idea? What's it mean for you to be sanctified? It means God is using you for the purpose for which you were created. He has washed you and he has set you apart to be for him who he created you to be. And then thirdly, he says, you have been justified. Justified is a word that means to declare righteous. I've heard preachers say that justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's clever. But it's really not accurate. Because if I was just as if I'd never sinned, I would just be forgiven. I'd just go back to the start and get, to, get a do-over. Justified doesn't just mean I'm just as if I've never sinned. Justified means I am, by God, declared to be righteous. The idea is really captured in a verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that mean? God took your sin and he put it on Jesus, but he didn't stop there. He didn't leave you just as if you'd never sinned. He took Jesus' righteousness and he put it on you. So if you're a believer here today, you are just as righteous as Jesus is because you have his righteousness. You are just as holy as Jesus is. That's why Jesus didn't just come for a weekend. You know, he could have come for a weekend, said, I got this, I got this dying and rising thing to do. I'm going to go for the weekend. He didn't do that. He came for 33 years. Why? He established a life of holiness that he would put to your account. We are justified. We are declared righteous by God. So you see, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And even though that's who you were, God has washed you clean, set you apart, and declared you righteous. Which brings us to the third and final point, our position in the present. How do we get from unrighteous to righteous? Righteous. 
How do we get washed? How do we get set apart? How do we get justified? How do we go from no inheritance to full inheritance? Well, look at the end of verse 11. He gives us two phrases there that are loaded with significance. The first is, you were justified, notice, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's the name? You say, well, I believe in the man upstairs. I believe in God. I believe God exists. What's the name? You've got to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Bible tells us that God has taken the name of Jesus and exalted it above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. How do you get washed? How do you get set apart? How do you get justified? It's by being in the name of Jesus. And then notice the second phrase, in the Spirit of our God. Where is Jesus right now in bodily form? Well, he's in heaven. And the Bible tells us he's going to come back someday. So the question is, how does he operate in this world? Well, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. The Spirit of God is in this world, and he's the one who convicts us. He's the one who draws us. He's the one who causes us to be born again. He's the one who seals us. At the end of this chapter, we're going to be reminded that the Spirit is the one who lives in us. So it's in the name of Jesus, but it's by the Spirit of God. Look at a verse with me. Look over at Titus chapter 3. Titus 3.3. 3. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Titus 3.3. 3. He says, For we also once were... Foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's who you used to be. Same idea we read in 1 Corinthians 6. And then verse 4 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, there's the washing, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, that's the idea of sanctified, set apart, renewed by the Holy Spirit. And notice, it's the Holy Spirit at work. And then verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's the name above every name. 
And then verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, there's the third component, justified, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6 says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Titus 3 tells us we are now heirs of the kingdom of God. Gordon MacDonald is an author and pastor. At one time when he was a pastor, he was involved in sexual indiscretion. He repented of it. He was restored to his wife. He eventually became a pastor again. I read in Leadership Magazine an article, in an article that he had a dream. And in his dream, there were a bunch of Christians milling around, and they all had name tags on, kind of like our church. And in this dream, he looked down at his name tag, and it was one of those, hello, my name is Gordon. And then underneath, at the bottom of the name tag, it said, adulterer. And he looked at the guy next to him, his said, hello, my name is John, drunkard. Another guy, Jim, homosexual. Janet, slanderer. Everyone in the room had a name tag with their name and their sin. And he said, Jesus was there, and he walked up to each one of them, and he peeled off their name tags and put it on himself. And Gordon MacDonald said, at the end of the dream, no one had their name tags on. Jesus was wearing them all. Adulterer, homosexual, liar, thief, covetous. He was covered with them. That's an analogy of what Jesus did on the cross when he took your sin and he put it on himself. See, this passage tells us about the people who won't be in heaven. And those are the people you used to be. But because Jesus has taken your unrighteousness, and Jesus has washed you and sanctified you and justified you, you who didn't inherit the kingdom of God, now are heirs of that kingdom. How? In the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You know what I love about this passage? Who gets the glory? Jesus gets it all. I'm going to have the praise team come back. I didn't ask them to do this, but they're good. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing in closing that song, His Name, and celebrate the fact that it's not about us. It's about Him.
And as we sing together, if you're here today and you, you're not sure that you have entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, you're not sure that you can say, I'm in Jesus, we would love to pray with you today as we close this service. So you come, and we'd love to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord. Let's sing this from the heart to the Lord as we close our service today.